2022, recruiting has been a very tough business for all of the military services. The Air Force met its goals for active duty force this fiscal year, but it's had to pull out all the stops to do so. The Air National Guard and Reserve, meanwhile, are thousands of troops short, and officials say 2023 looks to be a challenging year, too. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has details on what's making things so difficult and what recruiting officials are doing to improve the situation. For the fiscal year that ends next week, both the active duty Air Force and the Space Force met their accession goals, but pulling it off wasn't easy. For the first time in a decade, the Air Force had to beef up its recruiting bonuses two separate times midway through the year, including a $14 million infusion into the fund that pays those bonuses in April and another $7 million addition in July. Also, to make this year's goal, the Air Force had to draw heavily from its delayed entry pool, made up of recruits who had already signed contracts but weren't scheduled to enter service until next year. Major General Edward Thomas is the commander of the Air Force Recruiting Service. He says this year was the toughest one the Air Force has had to contend with since 1999. Using Air Force lexicon, I would say that we're doing a, a dead stick landing as we come into the end of fiscal year 22. So dead stick landing as we hit the 30th of September, and we're going to need to turn around on the 1st of October and do an afterburner takeoff. We're going to be starting fiscal year 23 behind. About 5,000 recruits on the active duty side alone behind. We usually start with what we call a, a bank or a starting pool of about 25 to 27 percent. That banks down to about 10 percent. So we're going to be starting 23 in a tougher position than we started 22. So why was 2022 so difficult? There are a lot of factors in the mix. Military officials routinely point to issues like a declining number of young Americans who are qualified to serve, and within that pool, a further declining share of prospective recruits who are inclined toward military service or who just don't know much about the military at all. But those aren't new issues. What is new, Thomas says, is an unusually tight job market and the after-effects of COVID-19. The pandemic, he says, threw the machinery of the military recruiting system severely off-kilter, and some of the consequences didn't fully come to light until midway through this year. The battle for talent's been intense, and it hasn't just been uh, within DOD. It's been Amazon, it's been Google, it's been Starbucks, it's been American enterprises looking for good employees, good recruits. And then the second biggest factor in the short-term challenges has been the aggregate effects of two years of COVID. Now, I say very specifically the aggregate effects of two years of COVID because we came into COVID with a lot of momentum. We readjusted a lot of our processes. We went virtual. We went click to sign, which is had been too long coming anyway. There was a lot of things that we did to be able to work through COVID. However, by the time we got to October this year, by the end of October, the warning signs, the warning lights started flashing, and we realized that, that the momentum had had begin to suddenly slow. That largely is attributed to the effects of two years of not being in schools, two years of not being in public spaces, two lost classes of high school students. And on top of that, 70% of our recruiters are all new since COVID. Those key functions that you would do as a recruiter to be able to go out and the soft skills, the um, the selling the Air Force, if you will, and the way of life that we have to offer, that value proposition, those reps and sets were very, very limited. So we sent recruiting and training teams out across the country to go coach, to go mentor, to walk side by side with these recruiters to go, okay, okay, team, we got to get back in the game. 
and, and it's making a difference. Thomas says there were other complicating factors, too, what he calls process changes that made recruiters' jobs more difficult over the past couple years. One example is the transition to DOD's new electronic health record, MHS Genesis. He says over the long term, the new EHR will deliver huge benefits to the Air Force, but for now, it's requiring recruiters to spend time on new processes for ingesting new recruits' private sector health records into the DOD system. That process, for now, is setting back new accessions by about 20 days on average. The Air National Guard and Air Force Reserve didn't meet their goals this year. The reasons are almost identical to the challenges the active components face, but they're compounded by some of those same factors. In normal times, the reserve components can expect about 70% of their new members to be airmen who've just left the active duty force, but the tight labor market has caused fewer active duty airmen to stick around for reserve service. Chief Master Sergeant Edward White, the senior enlisted leader for Air Force Reserve Command, says instead of the usual 70% figure, the ratio is now down to about 50%. And making up for the loss of airmen with prior service puts even more demand on recruiting. We still need to meet our in-street to meet our numbers, but um, we have to change our recruiting models and just have to face the fact that we're not going to get those bodies uh, from the active component like we were used to. So then we have to use some of the tools and we have to adjust for budgets. We have to adjust for all of those things, for schoolhouses that um, we never really had to in the, in the past. And while the labor market is tight in general, the Air Force's ability to retain uniform personnel still varies quite a bit by career field. That's true across both the active and reserve components, says Lieutenant General John Healy, the chief of the Air Force Reserve. For example, I'm a pilot by trade in the Air Force Reserve, and I'm also on loan from an airline. Even though there was furloughs in some airlines as a result of COVID, it is a fact that for the next 15 to 20 years, there is a shortage of pilots worldwide. You know, when I transitioned, I was on active duty for the first 11 years of my career. When I got out, I was looking to continue to serve, but I was also looking for a degree of security in case furloughs happened, which they had 10 years prior to me getting out in the late 90s. So it was a security blanket that I absolutely was well aware of. Is that security blanket needed anymore if, in fact, they are not going to stop hiring in the airlines for the next 20 years? So I hate to say it, but there's a false degree of security Uh, that's being provided by the need for, in this case, pilots within the civilian community that's drawing the people to right out of active duty. And so the active component's not even, even keeping them as long as they typically would. They're seeing more exit. We're just not capturing the ones that we typically would have captured on the way out. Still, Thomas says there is reason for optimism, especially when it comes to the short-term challenges. The military has dealt with tight labor markets before, and the recruiting apparatus is getting itself back on track after the distortions COVID caused. The Air Force is also taking several steps to deal with some of the longer-term challenges. For example, it's commissioned the RAND Corporation to help figure out how to optimize its recruiting strategies, looking at everything from the geographic regions the service targets to specific recruiting approaches. Approaches. But Thomas says it's already clear to him that the Air Force can't get the talent it needs by relying solely on people whose full-time job is recruiting. So the service is going to need to lean more heavily on initiatives like the Recruiter Assistance Program, where brand new service members return to their communities to talk to their friends about the Air Force. In the challenges, particularly, Jared, the long-term challenges that we talked about, it can't be 1,500, 1,600 total force recruiters in Air Force Recruiting Service that's responsible for bringing in the entire next generation of airmen and guardians. We've got to take more of a whole-of-service approach to how we connect with our communities, 
to how we connect with this next generation. It's got to be uh, bringing people onto our bases in ways we haven't done in years. So we used to have uh, very aggressive base tour programs. where We brought them to, to gyms and flight lines and took them on aircraft, you know, showed them where airmen lived. And we would do that regularly, but we, did, we took personnel cuts. We cut down our community relations program. We stopped doing a lot of those things. We had what we called the Speakers Bureau, where we sent people out. We had a program to get people out and talking in schools and Lions Clubs and, and community events. I'm asking our wing commanders to, to help us because the very best recruiting assets we have is our people and our bases. And we can't just depend on Air Force recruiters to be able to connect with America. Our Air Force has to connect with America. Our Space Force has to connect with America. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. 
I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish I wish and it was it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader too is to solve near term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we we don't always succeed in those long term goals or those you know sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. 
And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield. 
And this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small-town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it, whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.